This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Riley Black, dinosaur blogger extraordinaire. We have Dinosaur of the Day Draco Pelta. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including another new dinosaur. There's so many coming out and it's the end of the year. We're trying to write our book and it's difficult when there's new ones still coming out. Yeah, we're just going to have to draw the line and be like, maybe it should be the top 10 dinosaurs of... January through November of 2018. We're doing things a little bit differently anyway, so it might not matter anyway. And this week, we'd also like to thank some of our patrons, specifically Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, and Jeb from Arkansas. And Bilal just upped his pledge to the Tyrannosaurus level. Whoa. Which is the one where you get all of our ebooks. So thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who supports us every week. We really appreciate it. Jumping into our dinosaur news, we've got a new dinosaur, which has been all over the news, mostly because of its name. So it's named Thanos after the supervillain, I think, from Marvel. I don't really watch superhero movies all that often, so I don't really know. I think it's a guy with a big magical glove. It's kind of oh, golden. Oh, from the latest movie. Yeah. We haven't seen that movie No. <laughs> but I know like some shenanigans happened with him, and he's a big, mean villain guy. But anyway, it kind of makes sense because Thanos is derived from thanato, I think is how you say it in Greek, which means death. So it's a big carnivore, so that makes sense. Uh-oh. I should mention, too, that this dinosaur was described by Raphael Delacorte and Fabiano Iori in Historical Biology, and they named the full dinosaur, because, you know, it always has a genus and a species, even though we leave the species name off all the time because it doesn't end in saurus. Um, so it's named Thanos Simonatoi. It's an impossible name to say. And it looks just as awkward written. (laughs) But the species Simonatoi is after Sergio Simonato, which is a lot more logical, who found the fossil way back in 1995 when it was originally found. And it's from an abelosaur, which is a group of large carnivorous theropods, mostly from the Cretaceous of South America. Being a large carnivorous dinosaur, it kind of makes sense they would name it after a supervillain, I suppose, because, you know, it's mean to eat other animals. But <laughs> well, it's life. Yeah, it is life. But they're always depicted as bad guys. And it's actually a close relative to Carnotaurus, the one that has the horns on its head, which is one of the meanest looking dinosaurs, I think, because it, it looks kind of evil with those horns. In the latest Jurassic World, they even made it like all red and menacing looking. And in fact, the authors even say that it might actually just be a Carnotaurus, but they only found one single vertebra of the <laughs> Thanos. So... They can't really tell for sure. And I've actually heard some Thanos fans be upset about this because it's such an incomplete specimen. It's just one partial vertebra and they named it Thanos. So if you're a huge fan of it, it's like, well, no other animal ever can be named Thanos because now that genus name is taken and it might just get synonymized with Carnotaurus. Anyway. They describe it as a medium-sized abelosaurid, and they estimate it at about 5.5 to 6.5 meters long, or an imperial unit's 18 to 21 feet long, which is, yeah, pretty medium-sized, I would say. 
I mean, it's a big animal, obviously, but as far as abelosaurs and large theropods go, it's not that big. It was found in São José de Rio Preto formation from the late Cretaceous, which is in southern Brazil. And I think we've talked about that formation before. There are several other similar-sized carnivores known from the same ecosystem, so the authors say it suggests, quote, a complex carnivorous fauna during the upper Cretaceous of Baru group, end quote. Makes sense. What were they all eating? How were they all living together? Yeah, it's really interesting, because a lot of times you just see, like, one of each size kind of thing, or sometimes there's just one big carnivore like T-Rex in Hell Creek, and then we just kind of figure, well... You know, the younger ones were filling some of the smaller niches. So it'd be really interesting to see some more follow-up on that and if we can kind of piece together what these different animals were eating and how they were interacting. The holotype is housed at the Monte Alto Museum of Paleontology, which is a really nice-looking museum. I didn't have it on our map until just now. It looks like they have a lot of original stuff on display. It's kind of just one of those lots of tables with kind of glass covers on the top, almost like jewelry, you know, when you go into a jewelry store and they have it all laid out. That's kind of how the museum is organized. It looks pretty neat. It's about 200 miles northwest of Sao Paulo, which in the scheme of Brazil is pretty close to Sao Paulo, but it's a large country. Yep. <laughs> so I guess we'll see. I don't know how long Thanos will be considered a valid genus. Sounds like it might get synonymized pretty soon. Or maybe even just being a partial vertebra might just become a nomon dubium. Still a cool name. Yeah. And another journal article really piqued my interest out of Heritage Science by P.F. Wilson and others, and that's because they were looking at the Megalosaurus holotype, which we just saw when we were in Oxford. So really what they were doing was they were doing a thorough analysis of that specific bone, trying to figure out what has happened to it over the years, because as they call it, it's, quote, the world's first scientifically described dinosaur, end quote. And it was originally put in their collections way back in the 1790s. Yep. So this bone has been around for quite a while, been handled by many generations of paleontologists, probably suffered some damage at the hands of, you know, changing humidity conditions because we didn't have good air conditioning in the 1790s and you know as temperatures change these bones can fall apart a little bit if you pick them up the wrong way a piece can fall off they even said early on it looks like there was just a crack on one side of the bone and now we know that it broke completely in half at that oh. point so it may have either Could be the way it was prepared yeah or just like over years of handling and just changing conditions that it you know split basically or it could just be that the drawing wasn't complete and they forgot to draw the crack on the other side, because that happens too. So specifically, what they're looking at is part of the lower jaw, which is all that they found in the holotype from the skull. And it reminds me of kind of a cartoon of someone who's missing teeth, because <laughs> it's basically just like one tooth sticking up really tall in the middle of the jaw. So it, when you glance at it, you're like, why does that dinosaur only have one tooth in that part of his jaw? When you glance at it, you say, why does that dinosaur only have a couple bones? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they kind of display it with a little more of an outline. No, they do. It's cool, but not much was found. Yes, very true. If you look a little closer, though, you can see like little bits of other teeth sticking up. But one of them is way taller. It looks like, you know, almost T-Rex sized big tooth sticking out and then not a lot else in the jaw. And like I said, there's a big crack. It basically lines up with that tooth. I think it's a little bit behind it. But you can tell that it's been repaired because it's an, a slightly different color. It's kind of a lighter brown. The fossil is just kind of regular fossil brown. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Dark brown and shiny. It's got how it looks. But for a long time, they've been trying to figure out exactly how much of it has been repaired and at what time. So they've done CT scans in the past and they found that over hundreds of years of, you know, preparation and <laughs> conservation that it had been repaired at least twice based on sort of differences that you can see in the color of different plaster. So this study was really to determine what kind of plaster was used during those repairs and if we could learn anything else about it. So the first plaster was made mostly of the same rock that the fossil was found in, which is actually really cool that they did that. You know, it helps to kind of keep things expanding and contracting in similar ways and also hopefully look a little bit more like it wasn't a repair job because you want it to kind of blend in naturally. There's a lot more of that plaster than 
the second repair. It makes up about 3.5% of the fossil volume. And it looks like the main thing that they were trying to do was fill in that big crack I was talking about that kind of split the piece in half. But then they also covered up some other areas for stability, it looks like. Weirdly, though, it also includes a lot of carbon and lead. They could tell because they did an x-ray diffraction on the fossil. It's a non-destructive test of the chemistry. And there's not usually a lot of carbon and lead in the rock. So they think that the carbon probably came in with the resin, and they included that to kind of stick it together. And then the lead was probably used to color the plaster red. It was a specific lead formula that's been used for a long time. It gives you a nice bright red color. One of the reasons a lot of paint has lead in it, because that was a thing for a long time. Fortunately, though, there wasn't too much lead in it, because otherwise a CT scan wouldn't have worked properly, because CT scans can't see through lead. Then when the second repair was done, they can easily distinguish it from the first repair because it doesn't have any of that lead or carbon, but instead it has barium in it, <laughs> which is another really weird thing you don't find in just like the dirt outside very often. And they also think that that was part of the resin, so kind of the glue. I think now they use something called like paleobond, which is supposed to be very non-destructive and good stuff for gluing things together at museum quality. But over the years, they've used all sorts of different stuff. <laughs> This made up a much smaller percentage of the fossil. It was only 0.3% of the fossil volume, about a tenth of the previous repair. And it looks like the main part of it was to repair teeth that had broken over the years, as well as possibly replace a tooth that's almost entirely missing from the surface. And we think that the teeth broke over the years because some of the early drawings show a lot more teeth <laughs> than the fossil looks like now. I mean, they're small. It's not that big one that was sticking up. There's still little small bumps but it looked a little bit more tooth-like than the later drawings. Where At least they look the big broken. one's still there. Yeah, yeah. The coolest part of the CT scan, though, is that you can see all of the replacement teeth that are actually embedded in the jaw, and it takes it from looking like there's just one big tooth to having at least 10, because all of a sudden this jaw is just jammed full of teeth ready to pop up and replace the ones that have gone missing. And it also makes the repair really obvious because the replaced tooth where they, they tried to line up, you know, the one where it broke off, they kind of missed it. <laughs> so when you look at the CT scan, you see like the tooth is coming up and then you shift halfway over and that's where their replacement plaster is lined up. But they did a good job. It looks really good. A lot of history. Yeah. Not to mention the millions of years that went into fossilizing it. Yeah, it is kind of crazy that for millions of years it was in relatively the same condition embedded in rock. And then we dig it out and just in like the blink of an eye, geologically, it's like crumbling apart. <laughs> we have to keep repairing it. In another part of the world, there was a cool story about a rare opalized dinosaur toe bone that resurfaced after five decades. And when you hear opalized dinosaur fossil, then yes, that means Australia. Oh, those are so cool. Yeah. It's from South Australia. It's a toe bone of Kakuro Kujani. It was a theropod. It was about the size of a turkey that lived in the early Cretaceous. And this toe bone, it's only about five centimeters long. The bone was thought to have been dug up in the early 1970s. And then Neville Pledge, who was the curator at the South Australian Museum back in the 70s, saw the fossil in an opal shop in 1973. So he took photos and measurements and plaster casts, but then somehow the fossil went missing. But then in April of this year, a resident, Joy Cloister, saw the fossil on sale online, so she bought it and offered it to the museum, and now it's on display at the museum's Opal Fossil Gallery. Awesome. Which, yeah, awesome that they also have an Opal Fossil Gallery. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> we gotta get to that museum. Yes. <laughs> also in Australia, actually in Rosewood, Queensland, the Johnston Park has a new theropod on display, and this is known as the Rosewood Swamp Tramper along with other dinosaur statues. There's about a dozen mines around Rosewood, and dinosaur footprints have been found, mostly of theropods. In China, we've got a bunch of updates on displays and museums. In Shenyang, Liaoning Province, there's a new display at the Paleontological Museum. It's a group of 39 juvenile cetacosaurus. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. They're all between 25 and 40 centimeters long. They were found in the city of Chaoyang, it's possible they were buried together by a flood or a mudslide. All the bodies are facing the same direction, and they're all in, it sounded like one piece of rock. That's crazy. So it's like 41-foot-long cetacosaurus yep. all lined up. Mm -hmm. That's nuts. We might have seen a picture of that fossil at one point. There's pictures floating around for sure. 
That's so cool. I'm really glad that they put it on display. That's mm-hmm. awesome. In Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula, there's a new museum that opened this year. It's the Museum of Science at the Chicxulub Crater. And that helps tourists learn about the Yucatan's prehistoric past. And it's this joint project by the Mexican government and National Autonomous University of Mexico. Cool. Yeah, I had no idea. We've learned so much about it lately with the Sean Gulick's group. group. Mm-hmm drilling into that peak ring that i'm sure there's a lot of stuff to put in that museum definitely i've got a quick update on the yale peabody museum of natural history in connecticut in the u.s they recently got a pretty big gift so major renovations are going to begin in 2020 there's plans to reopen the museum in the fall of 2023 it's going to be a big project the museum was founded in 1866 and has been in its current building since 1926 so seems like it's due for a renovation And the new museum, they're planning on having more public space, dedicated space for schools that are visiting, and a new entrance to a kid's area. That's one museum that we've always missed when we've been on the East Coast. Kind of thinking, like, should we try to get there before it changes, or do we just wait until it's updated? We've still got a year. Yeah. Time's running out. (laughs) (laughs) Could happen. (laughs) Yeah. In Montana, the Museum of the Rockies is offering a Tours for Tots Growing Dinosaurs that's on February 5th from 10 to 11 a.m. And it's for kids ages 3 to 5. It'll include an activity, art project, and story. In Utah, the Dalton Wells Dinosaur Site, north of Moab, near Arches National Park, is going through a proposal to have an entity manage it to help manage the vandalism. Apparently, people often dump their black and gray water tanks from their RVs. Yeah. The site has many dinosaur fossils. Over 50 dinosaur species have been found around Grand County. And Jim Kirkland is advocating that there be a Utah Raptor state park for the site. But there's still a lot of talk about who would manage it. And they would also need to build campgrounds and decide um, whether or not to build a second entrance to Arches National Park and a bunch of other questions. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Maybe add a place for people to empty their RV tanks. Maybe. So that it doesn't turn into a big gross mess. Well, if you have campgrounds, that's probably part of it. Oh, true. Good point. Also in Utah, at the Natural History Museum in Salt Lake City, DinoFest 2019 will be happening soon, January 26th and 27th, and it's free with regular admission. Visitors can meet paleontologists and learn about this year's theme, which is the origin of dinosaurs. It's a good theme. Mm-hmm. In Lake George, New York, there's a new owner of the Magic Forest Amusement Park who plans on adding dinosaurs, so there's going to be a safari trail with animatronic dinosaurs, then the park's going to be renamed Lake George Expedition Park and include Magic Forest and Dino Roar Valley. Hmm. So Magic Forest, the amusement park park, is going to have the same rides, and Dino Roar Valley will be a paved trail in a wooden area with dinosaurs. The plans aren't yet finalized, though. Can you use some more dinosaur amusement parks? And trails, yeah. Dinosaurs everywhere. <laughs> it's weird that we see so many of those on like the East Coast and stuff, but there aren't many in California that I've heard of. And the weather here is great year-round. They always have to close those in the winter. <laughs> I think Oregon has some. Weather there is not great either. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they just make them waterproof and then it's fine. In Kilgore, Texas, there's a welding company that sometimes makes steel dinosaurs and other prehistoric creatures. And they have one out front that's a raptor that apparently weighs a thousand pounds. So you're there. Hopefully you can see it. Cool. And then last, just want to end. Maybe some of you have heard about the recent campfire in California where many families lost their homes. And in one case, there was a four-year-old, Riley Wooten, who also lost his dinosaur collection. So his aunt posted on Facebook about it and asked for donations. And now Riley has about a hundred dinosaurs. Oh. And people also sent dinosaur blankets and pillows and dinosaur books. So very sweet. And now that Riley set, the family's encouraging people to pay it forward, do something nice for someone else who was affected by the fire. That's really nice. Yeah. There's only two weeks left to sign up for one of the coolest dinosaur dig programs we've ever heard of. It's a two-week, actually 16-day, field program in the American West put together by this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, CNCC. If you've been listening to our show, you know that we're big fans of their dig programs, and it's no surprise that their first program only has three spaces left. That's not many spaces. No, and there's possibly less by the time you're hearing this. If you want to join the July 6th to July 20th dig, then make sure you sign up right now. That's the one with three spaces left. Yes. 
There are a few more spots left on the second dig, too, on July 22nd to August 5th, but it's also a good idea to sign up now before space runs out there. When you get to the field, you'll be taught by expert paleontologists from CNCC and experience a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. So go to cncc.edu slash dinodig, you'll get all the details, and make sure you register online by May 31st, or preferably sooner. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. Sabrina and I love to find the best dinosaur museums around the world, and that requires a fair amount of traveling. A lot of times, those museums are off the beaten path. One of the most challenging museums to get to was the Mifune Dinosaur Museum in Kumamoto, Japan. The only way to get there is either by taxi or bus, and we very nearly got stranded because we couldn't read the bus schedule and there weren't taxis available, so it got a little bit dicey. Yes, we would have been in much better shape if we'd studied just a little more Japanese before that trip. Fortunately, we eventually managed to find our way thanks to some very kind and helpful people who work at the museum. A few more phrases, though, would have made a big difference for us, so we highly recommend preparing for your next big trip by signing up for Rosetta Stone at rosettastone.com dino. For a limited time, just for our listeners, you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership of all 25 of their language courses. The lifetime membership for all 25 courses is just $179, and normally that's $399, so it's a great deal. Again, that's rosettastone.com dino. And now we're going to get into our interview with Riley Black. But before we do, I just want to mention that if you want the full version of this interview, patrons can grab it from your custom RSS feed or the website. I also want to mention that the audio sounds a little bit rough in the very beginning, but it gets much better, so hang in there for the first minute or so, because Skype just wasn't being very friendly to us. We're here today with Riley Black, who is a prolific science writer and has worked on a number of amazing projects. She's written for Smithsonian, National Geographic, Nature, and Slate, to name a few. She's got a blog, Laylapse, on Scientific American, and she's written numerous books, including My Beloved Brontosaurus, Prehistoric Predators, When Dinosaurs Ruled, and Written in Stone. And she's got a new book, Skeleton Keys, coming out in March of next year. She also goes on dinosaur excavations every summer, was the host of the video series Dinologue, and has been named a resident paleontologist for Jurassic World. Very impressive. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So, okay. My Beloved Brontosaurus was published in 2013. And so I have to ask, what do you think of Dr. Emmanuel Shops and his team proposing that Brontosaurus was a valid genus in 2015? Yeah, I got asked that quite a bit when that paper uh, came out. <laughs> it, it could be ex exciting. I, I mean, Brontosaurus is such a great name. You know, who wouldn't want the Thunder Lizard back? So I guess this gets in the backstory of like why there's confusion in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got several species of uh, Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus, you know, Brontosaurus excelsus is its full name. was thought to be another species of Apatosaurus, Apatosaurus excelsus. So now there's a case being made that it should be split back out again into brontosaurus but still comes out as the sister taxon to all those apatosaurus species so really it's just at this point do we really want the name back we can call it brontosaurus if we want but does it make sense in terms of how we think about in terms of species or in terms of you know what distinguishes one from the next and uh, i know there's a lot of discussion afterwards about you know what skeleton belongs to what taxon and there are all these things that we call the patasaurus that may or may not be so i think there's a lot of sorting out to do so i think it's an interesting hypothesis but uh, it's going to take a lot more testing just like all, all of science like it's a cool idea but this probably isn't the last that we've heard of uh, whether brontosaurus should be the valid name or not Sure. Yeah, I was really expecting to hear more about it shortly afterwards, but now it's been three years and we've heard very little response, at least in the literature. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen a whole lot on the other side. A lot of this is just, you know, when people come out with new cladograms, when they um, use the previous analyses and they plug something new in and how that falls out. And just like if you, with that repetition, if you keep getting the same result over and over again, then you can be relatively confident that you're on the right track. I don't think that's quite happened yet. And there still seems to be a lot of analysis about some of these skeletons, like the um, skeleton that's on display at the uh, AMNH, the Apatosaurus there, as well as the Apatosaurus at the Field Museum. You know, these classic Jurassic skeletons that really stood in for um, Apatosaurus and or Brontosaurus over time. But there's some question about like what 
taxon they actually belong to. And this is really trying to get that resolution in the Morrison formation. Okay, like what species do we have overlapping with each other and where in time and trying to get that fine scale view. And that's the kind of exciting part in all this. It's like, I'm not so much interested in um, the answer as much as like all these other questions that these sorts of puzzles bring up, like in terms of, okay, Brontosaurus, well, if it's actually distinct and it's actually separate from the other apatosaurus species where does it fit in geographically where does it fit in terms of the timeline how did it split off what caused it to be uh, so distinctly different i think all those great questions will tell us a lot more about these animals and how they lived and, and how they evolved so really the whole brontosaurus controversy like okay you know call it what you want but to me it's kind of that's the sort of um you know banner for a lot of much more interesting questions about dinosaur evolution and ecology that are sort of buried underneath that Right. I got that sense in your book. Like we used to think of dinosaurs as sluggish and in this totally different way. And now we know more, but that has kind of given rise to even more questions. <laughs> well, that's what we want as scientists, right? That's, you know, you find one thing and it's not like you make a discovery and you put it on a shelf and now we know one more thing. And it's just this additive kind of <laughs> cumulative view of the universe. It's, you know, you find something, you get a whole bunch more questions, you know, even just out in the field, you see a bone or a fragment of a bone and say, okay, what sort of creature did this belong to? What time period are we looking at? Why is it buried here? Why does it look like that? You know, how did the soft tissues wrap around that? What can it tell us about how this animal moved, lives, all, all this stuff. This is the, you know, bread and butter of, of paleontology. It's not so much like the results as just this ongoing quest to, to understand these animals and uh, you know, how they lived, how they fill in this backstory of uh, life on Earth. Definitely. Do you also have a dinosaur tattoo? Yeah, I have uh, three. Let me think. Well, I guess technically, <laughs> technically five because uh, birds <laughs> are dinosaurs after all. Yes. <laughs> um, but on, on my on my uh, right arm, I have uh, an out. The first one was an Allosaurus tattoo skeleton uh, that was designed by uh, Glendon Mello, who goes by uh, the Flying Trilobite on Twitter and elsewhere. Nice. And um, after that, I got a Ceratosaurus and a Torvosaurus in the same arm. So to do that uh, Morrison formation, kind of like big three. <laughs> carnivores that we knew were in those uh in those habitats and it's one of those you know i just did the first one and i just kept having ideas and went from there nice yeah it's like the first thing if you google your name it's like a picture of you with this huge like <laughs> dinosaur tattoo and it's like yeah that's that's the right guy <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i've had that happen a few times it's like oh you're the guy with that tattoo and it's like uh which one <laughs> <laughs> yeah it must be an old picture because i think it just has one on it yeah, yeah, I've added quite a few more since then. <laughs> <laughs> Moving to Utah helped, but I guess I'm wondering for people who might be interested in following a similar path as you in mm -hmm. writing for about science, like how did you get into the field and become full-time a writer? Yeah, so this wasn't something that I ever set out intentionally to do. Uh, if I did, I'm not sure whether it would have gone better or, or worse. But <laughs> at the time that I started, uh, I was an undergraduate student at Rutgers University in New Jersey. I was studying uh, ecology and evolution. But many of the classes that I took had much more to do with sort of forestry and other aspects of, you know, sort of broad scale ecology. And I really I wanted to learn more about animals like vertebrate zoology, that sort of stuff, like the ecology of organisms. And uh, there wasn't really much opportunity for me to do that at the time, or at least in a way that, you know, I felt fulfilled by. So, you know, I remember my love for fossils and of dinosaurs. And this was also at the time when, you know, blogs were relatively new and you know, everybody had one, you know, before Twitter and, you know, Facebook was around, but mm -hmm. not in the same way that if you wanted to share your thoughts or something, you got a, a blog. So I started, uh, you know, through my university's, uh, you know, library and computer access system, looking at the papers about some of the dinosaurs like Acrocanthosaurus and stuff that, you know, I'd heard about, but I didn't really know a whole lot about it. I wanted to get reacquainted with these animals and then a little bit more about them. And as I was doing so, I used the blog to write about what I was learning. And at first, it was just something more or less for fun. I think I signed up for a website that um, had like a scholarship contest where you got like points for every post that you got and every comment that you got and whatever. <laughs> and I wound up getting like a you know $500 like small scholarship you know for coming in with that. But really, it, it made me love writing, writing about science in particular, and I kept it up. And, uh, you know, about nine months after that scholarship contest ended, I started writing for a website that's now defunct, but at the time was like the kind of hub for these things called Science Blogs. And about a year after that, Smithsonian came calling looking for a dinosaur blogger. And I was working on my first book at the time, uh, which was written in stone and came out in 2010. Uh, but I really just started doing this because I liked it. It was, it was my hobby that it took quite a while to uh, become a career. Really, I started 
I think about 11, you know, now 12, I guess. Yeah, 12 years ago without really a specific goal in mind other than I just enjoyed writing and I'd like to write a book at some point. And then little by little, you know, blogging on places like WordPress led me to, you know, blogging gigs that paid a little bit, which led to, you know, op-eds and the occasional article, which, you know, helped me with the first book. And it just kind of rolled on from there. So really my start as a professional science writer started once I moved to Utah and I went full-time freelance. But, you know, I, I would say for anybody who's looking to do something similar to what I do, um, that the field has changed uh, a little bit. You know, blogs are, I'm not going to say extinct because I'm still writing them, <laughs> but, they're, but they're not quite as popular as they used to be. Like little by little, a lot of websites have either converted them over to news or they've closed down. You know, that, that sort of, there's not the thriving science blogging ecosystem that there once was. And now even if you do have a blog, you need to engage in other forms of social media to get people to know that it's there because the conversation has moved on to places like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and Tumblr and all those other social media sites. Um, in a way, things have kind of reverted almost back to the way they were before science blogging, where uh, a lot of you know young science writers now, I think, are going back to uh, graduate school specifically for uh, science journalism or a related field. Or, you know, you can spend your time really kind of honing your craft in your free time but then it's a matter of like well how do you make those connections and get this to people and get those first clips to then mm -hmm. get to the meeting mm -hmm. to do the networking and, and all that sort of stuff so it's a little bit more complicated now i like i really i feel hit it at a pretty open window because this was a time period where anyone could start a blog and you could kind of show off your expertise and people would you notice and that would lead to more gigs um in terms of science communication I think the field's a bit more open. Like you can hop on Instagram immediately and set up an account and use the right hashtags and things like that and get people to, uh, you know, find your stuff and follow and share facts and, and things like that. Um, so in terms of science communication, you know, the platforms like YouTube and Instagram and stuff can do really well if that's the way that you want to jump into it. But if you want to be like a science writer, like a science journalist and write articles and books and things like that, uh, it's a little bit more difficult now than uh, it used to be. It can be done, but the paths are a little bit more formalized, I think, than they were 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed reading My Beloved Brontosaurus, and I think it's a really great book for people who maybe they know a little bit about dinosaurs, but they want to go a little bit deeper. And like you were saying, it's mm -hmm. the scientific process, but you also cover a lot of the history of the discoveries and the kind of the stories around that. And then um, a lot of the I noticed a lot of different paleontologist names. So if anyone was curious, like who works in this field? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that's that's part of it because, I mean, science is a very human thing to do. I think oftentimes science is held up as this sort of super objective, you know, distillation of truth. But really what science is is a way of knowing. And there is, there is fact, there is a natural world that we exist in that we can understand. But the way that we do, you know, this process, science is a human process. It's done by people and the, the way that we are raise the views that we have, who we are, um, why we ask the questions we do. These are all informed by culture. You know, for a while, there's this sort of like debate. And I remember this in the old science blogging days of, you know, like science versus the, the two cultures model that science and sort of the humanities are totally separate and they can't really reconcile with each other. And, <laughs> you know, they're always fighting everything else. But really, they're so inter connected, you know, once, once you, you know, have a look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I love talking about in these books, you know, the people who are doing this and what they thought in the history of these discoveries and why our ideas changed, you know, because we really have to reconcile with that if we're going to understand the changing nature of science. You know, the bones are the same as they ever were. The, you know, the bones of Brontosaurus that are um, up at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History, they've been the same since they came out of the ground or at least went up onto that uh, skeletal mount, you know, in the mid 20th century. Mm -hmm. Our interpretation of those bones has changed based upon new things that we're learning. And I, I think it kind of cheapens science to act like okay you know now we have we've discovered something and we know it and we're gonna just now it's permanent and it's gonna stay there because we know it's not how it works right and, and and that really confuses people it's like wait well you said this last year then why is it different now like you know, the whole thing like why is brontosaurus possibly back so i think really we can't communicate science effectively unless we're talking about how it works mm -hmm. and all the, all that stuff the history the culture of it who's doing it and why that all plays into that yeah well i think i really good example of that is you have a whole chapter on dinosaur sex and dinosaur mating. And when yeah. dinosaurs were first being talked about, that was just nobody ever talked about that aspect of it. Or if they did, it was very high level. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah, it just was not a polite thing to talk about. There was no way to really know uh, how it was done. But, you know, I, I think I used this example in, in the book. But, you know, this is during the same time period where people would observe, um, for example, the mating habits of like Adelaide penguins and be so disturbed because these penguins, you know, sometimes try and mate with corpses. You know, there's some things that, you know, from a human standard, we would find distasteful that these penguins do. And it was so salacious. And like, it was basically the sealed, like secret report of penguin behavior. that was only recently just re-released. And that was just the scientific, you know, sort of theme at the time. It's supposed to be respectable. And, you know, there are just some questions that people either didn't ask or didn't think to ask or might, you know, joke about in, in private or whatever. But uh, I think in some ways it prevented us from understanding dinosaurs as animals for a while. And if you think about the the rest of the scientific culture, even paleontology culture at the time, in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, dinosaurs were really, they weren't that interesting to most paleontologists. <laughs> mm-hmm. They would be sort of box office for museums, like, you know, put up a big skeleton, you get people to come in. It's really, really cool. But if you look at the scientific research that was being done, like the papers that are really being churned out, the debates that existed at the time, most of them are about fossil mammals. Because if you wanted to understand how, how evolution worked, you needed a good sample size. And fossil mammals have that, mm-hmm. whereas many dinosaurs don't. And this is during a time period as well where evolution by the means of natural selection wasn't yet widely accepted. You know, we all know that On the Origin of Species was published in 1859, but it doesn't mean that everybody agreed with it. In fact, uh, Peter Bowler, a historian of science, has written quite extensively about this. You know, how you'd sort of have this Darwinian mode of evolution, you know, with Alfred Russell Wallace also, you know, sort of involved in that as well. But not everybody agreed. And there's a lot of debate about these alternate modes of evolution, these sort of Lamarckian yeah. modes of evolution in which species could acquire traits and sort of get locked in during their lifetime and passed down and all this, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And it was only until about the 1940s, 1950s, uh, the modern synthesis that we had evolution by natural selection be accepted. So the way the dinosaurs fit into this is that they didn't make sense, that you couldn't really study evolution if you were studying dinosaurs, because many of them seem aberrant or singletons. And in a lot of these views of evolution, dinosaurs were sort of destined to fail, that they got too big too fast, their brains were too small, there were too much ornamentation that they were putting their bodily energy into, and all these other modes of evolution that, um, you know, just even though we'd like to think that dinosaurs are always famous ever since they were first discovered, like for a while they were just kind of used to bring the public into museums, but not very scientifically interesting. It wasn't until about, you know, the 1960s that dinosaurs started being interesting again to paleontologists. Yeah. That's really interesting to me too, how like there was such a big lull. There was like that huge boost in like the bone wars days when everyone's like, Oh, dinosaurs, we got to go like collect as many as possible, get them in the museums. And then like 19 early 1900s through, like you said, like 1960, 1970, there was like nothing. <laughs> Everybody was just like, Oh, that's a, uh, that was fun while it lasted. And now it's just like exploding again. And it's really fun to just follow the crazy number of discoveries going on. Absolutely. I mean, and it's even still relatively recent, you know, even after the dinosaur boom, like the dinomania of the 1980s, early 1990s, which I certainly, you know, benefited from and enjoyed. I was talking to some paleontologists at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting that we just had in Albuquerque, you know, people who were there in the 90s saying, like, I remember when there's like maybe two dinosaur sessions in the whole meeting, and there's <laughs> only a handful of paleontologists. Now, like, you know, there's almost too much dinosaur content at these meetings. and There's so many dinosaur paleontologists. So, you know, even in the last 20 years, the, the dinosaur studies in particular have really exploded. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In your book, I know it's been a few years, but you mentioned that you work at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Are you still doing that? Uh, I still volunteer with them. Yeah. So I never had a staff position, but I, uh, I volunteer with them in uh, the, the paleontology collections with uh, collections manager, Carrie Levitt Buzion. And then uh, I go out in the field with them, you know, a couple of times every year. Uh, so I, gr- I join different groups based upon when I'm available, who's going where, if there's a particular site that I want to see. Um, but, you know, most often, you know, I'll join up with uh, the Natural History Museum of Utah group when they go to uh, Grand Staircase or a place called Indian Creek outside of Canyonlands or just whatever else that they have going on if I'm free that weekend. And, it's you know, I always look forward to it, you know, March of every year when things start to get li- just warm <laughs> enough to head out. And definitely on that first trip if I can swing it. Nice. How late does it go to if it starts in March? Uh, field work often goes from March through uh, late September or early October. So really, especially out west where, um, you know, the winters, you know, they can be harsh at higher elevations. But in places like Utah and some of the more four corner states, you know, it gets pretty mild 
pretty quick, or at least, you know, you can make the most of it. So really, you know, in half the year, there's an opportunity to get out and go digging. Nice. So as someone who's gone to many dig sites, but also museums, do you have any favorites or any like must-sees for people who are into this sort of thing? Yeah. So in terms of museums, you know, there's a lot of really great places. And I, I recommend a lot of the sort of the local museums. Like we all know about the American Museum of Natural History. We all know about the National Museum of Natural History, places like that, the Field Museum, the Carnegie. Those are all, all, all super famous places. But even places like the San Diego Museum of Natural History, I really love because they've got these awesome models and they kind of integrate the story and you kind of weave through time. So if you're San Diego, in San Diego, I certainly recommend that one. Uh, a lot of them are in Southern California, actually. You can actually do kind of a nice little museum trip even <laughs> just out there, like the uh, ALF Museum of uh, Paleontology in, mm-hmm. in Claremont and uh, even the Naturalist Museum of Los Angeles County, especially their fossil mammal exhibit, which nobody goes into, which I always <laughs> want to see more people in there. Uh, and, you know, the um, La Brea Tar Pits and Museum is, oh, is yeah. there as well. Um, and that's one of my favorite places. I mean, that may be the most important fossil site on the planet. So yeah, you have to just great. go to one, I would say that. But my recommendation would also be just, you know, try and look up, especially in the West, roadside fossil stops. You know, there, there are really big ones like Dinosaur National Monument on the Utah-Colorado border that, you know, we, there's a national monument built around it. And um, it's really famous. You can get to see that famous quarry wall with all the bones still embedded. But there are plenty of like track sites around Moab, Utah. There are uh, plenty of places in, in Colorado. We could just stop along the highway and see, okay, this is the spot where like Othniel Charles Marsh excavated, or at least he paid people to excavate dinosaurs like Diplodocus and Ceratosaurus and things like that. So the sort of fossil byways stuff, I think, um, you know, it's, it's worth uh, doing a little bit of a Google for if you're traveling out west and see what there is just to pull over and see that you might otherwise totally pass by. And uh, to give people a start, I guess there's a, a, actually a scenic byways system in Utah called the Dinosaur Diamond. So if you just Google like Dinosaur Diamond Utah, I'll come up with a list of, you know, a whole bunch of different track sites, museums, other sort of stops along the way where you can go check out dinosaurs. And, and to me, that's some of the neatest stuff, yeah. um, you know, the, getting to see a lot, especially track sites, getting to see them preserved there, you know, in the ground with all this awesome scenery. I definitely recommend looking that up. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Definitely going to check that out. Oh, yeah. We're just writing that down. Diamond. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, your website says you're the resident, you're a resident paleontologist for Jurassic World. What does that mean? All right. So um, when Jurassic World, the first movie was coming out, I was contacted by uh, Universal to see if I would help out their marketing team um, create some dinosaur content for the film. So populate their website with sort of, uh, you know, dinosaur fact sheets for some of the creatures in the movies, um, you know, come up with some you know, emails with some you know, further details about animals like Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops and things like that. And as part of that, they uh, named me as Jurassic World's paleontologist so i'm technically you know i'm not in the movies or anything i didn't have any advising on the movies themselves but i'm sort of have a character i'm sort of an in-world character as well (laughs) as you know jurassic world's paleontologist i can only assume that i survived because they contacted me again to do some more work for them for the second film um but that but that's what that means is that you know even though uh, as we all know jack horner is the paleontologist who advises on the movies themselves i worked with different arms of universal on uh they get their dinosaur facts and, and figures and stuff as accurate as the movies would allow uh for some of those other materials about the animals in the movie very cool that's really cool yeah were you able to go on set or go to a premiere or anything i got lunch at the cafeteria at universal studios but that's about as far <laughs> as i got <laughs> pretty cool <laughs> oh yeah i was i was glad to be asked I remember that first movie, Jurassic Park, coming out when I was about 10 and just being enthralled by it and seeing these animals that looked like they were you know, living dinosaurs. And uh, to be contacted by, you know, Universal, to even just have you know, a pretty small role just uh, you know, involving, involving dinosaur science with the sort of revival of, of this franchise, I was just you know, too, too happy to take <laughs> up the chance. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Oh, yeah. We've been following your blog for a while. Oh, yeah, it's a very good blog. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. You also cover a wide range of topics. I saw like the latest ones. Was it prehistoric parasites? Also shark bite marks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you choose what to cover? That's quite a range. 
It's more or less what strikes my interest. Usually there's a paper or something, you know, some, something newsworthy um, that makes me take notice. And I like being able to send people back to the paper for more information if they want it. I've been trying to blog more about open access stuff, so it's easy for people to open and uh, have a look at. Mm-hmm. But for example, you mentioned the post about um, you know, parasites and the fossil record and how you know, we don't actually have a very good record of parasites. We know that they must have been there. They're probably as old as you know, animal life is, more or less. But you know, these are these you know organisms that you know live in us with us around us that shape behavior that shape evolution that can tell us about you know perhaps you know ecology of ancient habitats that uh, you know we often forget about because when we envision the past we often think of animals that are kind of in the prime of life you know the biggest body size and they're healthy and they don't have any broken bones or scars or anything else and i just thought that was a neat paper for just even the reminder that yeah, you know, parasitism has existed for a very long time, and it's <laughs> a view of um, you know ancient ecology that we don't know a whole lot about, and that maybe we should be looking a little bit more, at least keep our minds open to um, these sorts of things. Because I think with basically as old as dinosaurs are, at least the scientific conception of it, we tend to think of these animals as you know prehistoric monsters. There used to be books even just called like extinct monsters and things like that, where you know, they, they almost seem to have this like supernatural kind of power to them that they're always, you know, at, at, at the apex of their game and, you know, the best health, their prime of life. And, you know, you go to, you know, just any environment today and you watch the animals and like, you know, that's not true. They're animals that are sick or, you know, infested with parasites or, you know, might be small for their age or whatever it is, the sort of the variation of animals that makes them Animals. So anything that really reminds us about that, about the fossil record, I, I really attach to. And in general, uh, most of what I write about, it's, just, it's stuff that just kind of perks up my ears, for lack of a better term. So this <laughs> is like, okay, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. yeah, the paleopathologies are some of my favorites too, especially when people start talking about like, we thought that this was a unique characteristic of this dinosaur, and then we figured out that, oh, it's actually just like a bone that was fused because it was injured or something. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like some of the complexity where you can get into complicated situations if you don't think, like you say, about them being real living animals and the kind of variation that occurs between them. Yeah, and this is just another part of like how science works and how it's always changing, you know, how many you know, dinosaurs like had a, I think uh, example, and I hope I'm not wrong. I think I'm remembering this correctly, but there's uh, a Therizinosaur called Nothronychus mm-hmm. and um, part of its hip was originally interpreted as part of the frill of an animal found in the same bone bed called Zuniceratops. <laughs> and they only realized later because, you know, they weren't thinking that this animal might be in this sort of deposit. And that came up as a, as a surprise. And yeah, just things like that. I found endlessly fascinating that, you know, this is, not just about the animals themselves, but how how we do this, the process by which we figure things out and puzzle it together. Yeah, the sort of like anthropology piece of it too. The, Absolutely. One of my favorite pieces of like dinosaur paleontology, anthropology, is that skull from Jurassic Park and how mm-hmm. it's got this little extra bump in one of its fenestra. And it turns mm-hmm. out that that's actually a piece of its palate that like broke off and then during the process of fossilization kind of got fused up in the back of its head but you can see the skull because that's the one a ton of people use for their drawings of t-rex and it's like this weird little nuance that you'd never notice if you weren't looking for it and then once you know it's there you're like oh i know which skull they're basing that on yep yeah exactly well especially with tyrannosaurs i feel there's a lot of that there's a lot of because their their skulls seem to have a lot of character to them mm-hmm. as well, and they're so famous that you know you, it's easy to look at a uh, restored or reconstructed tyrannosaur and be like, okay, I know exactly what specimen you're yeah. you're working from. <laughs> yeah, that is great. So I know Skeleton Key is coming out in March, and that's a big project. But are you working on any other projects right now? Uh, I'm hoping to. Uh, I'm still keeping up the blog at Scientific American. I'm still freelancing here and there where I can. I should have some stories coming out this week from uh, SVP at Smithsonian. Other than that, just you know, keeping the freelancing stuff going and trying to think about what the next book is uh, going to be about. And if I can hopefully get that sold, it's it's <laughs> actually very hard to to do that. Because for those of you who've never pitched a book before, 
what you do is you come up with a concept and you write a pitch or a proposal for it. And it's kind of like writing the book before you've written it, Mm -hmm. where you kind of come up with an overview and a chapter by chapter breakdown of what you're going to say. And you kind of go back and forth with the publisher about it. Um, You you don't just like write it and hand it in. It's almost like a negotiation about what the book is going to be about, (laughs) it's going to contain. So I'm still very much in that phase right now. But the thing that I have on, on my slate right now is fossil related and it has to do uh, with the end of the Cretaceous and, you know, hopefully it'll get picked up, but uh, yeah, I, I just say, you know, keep your eyes peeled for, for news in the near future about what will be coming after skeleton keys. Nice. What's well, an exciting time period to cover. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, especially given what happened at the very end of the Cretaceous, <laughs> yeah. which is you know, a little bit of a clue about what the book will, will be about. But yeah, I mean, it was really this, I think a turning point you know, for, for life on earth. And, uh, you know, one of these things where, yes, you had the volcanism in, in India and, you know, sea, sea change was going on in terms of sea level altering and climate was changing. All these changes were going on. Dinosaurs are still doing good until the, you know, asteroid struck. And it was one of these things where one of the few moments in time where you can point to a specific moment when something happened and then everything changed around it that, you know, we're not talking about a change of, you know, like 10 million years of a mass extinction, it's like everything was fine. And then a split second later, everything was going to be altered forever. And I, I kind of like looking at that moment and just saying why, you know, and, and what could have happened if it didn't. Because that, that's the kind of, even though mass extinctions, you know, aren't neat or clean or and certainly not happy things, in a moment like that where you have an asteroid strike or you have a specific event that, you know, triggers something, it opens up all these other possibilities thinking, well, what if that didn't happen? Or why mm-hmm. did these survivors survive and what went extinct died out? And that's part of the fun of it, right? You know, so the speculative biology, we'll never have the answers to those questions, but the fact that they can even be raised, I think is just another fascinating part of this, you know, thinking about life as a system and something that's ongoing and, you know, ebbs and flows and, you know, evolves and changes. Uh, and it's awesome that, you know, dinosaurs are just such a good example of that. Definitely. So, if people want to follow you and learn more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to find you? I would say um, the best place to follow my stuff is to find me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Laylaps. That's L-A-E-L-A-P-S. Um, I do have a Facebook fan page as well. Uh, that should be uh, Paleo Sweetech. And uh, yeah, just really, if you just give my name a, a Google or pop it into Amazon, usually whatever I'm working on will pop up pretty near the top. Mm, nice. Awesome. And you can see your sweet dinosaur tattoos, too, if you... <laughs> yes. Yeah, turn on the image search. <laughs> Is there a story behind the Laylaps name, how you chose that? Yeah. So I picked that because Laylaps was the original name picked for a Tyrannosaur. They didn't, I mean, Tyrannosaurs hadn't been named yet. We now know it's a Tyrannosaur. But a dinosaur that was described by Edward Drinker Cope and uh, is from the New Jersey Marl Pits, which I had you know, visited and done a little bit of field work at. And it turned out that Laylaps was preoccupied as a name by a kind of mite. I think it's a mite that lives on birds, maybe more specifically owls, if I'm recalling correctly. But anyway, um, Othniel Charles Marsh, Cope's rival, realized this and in the footnote of another paper renamed Laylaps uh, Dryptosaurus. So that's the dinosaur that, as we know it today. But to me, it really, you know, just that name, uh, Laylaps, it really, it, it summarized a lot, like, you know, where I was originally from, you know, dinosaurs, the history of paleontology and science. So it was just a neat, short, little, memorable handle that I think encapsulated uh, a lot of what I wrote about. Uh, and I've just stuck with it ever since. Nice. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again, Riley. We checked out the San Diego Museum of Natural History after your tip, and it's pretty awesome. They got a really good ankylosaur there. Oh, yeah. We haven't posted pictures of that one yet, but we posted a few on our Instagram of the museum. Yeah, it's really cool, because it's actually a newly discovered dinosaur from California, but it did not win the state dinosaur. (laughs) That's okay. Could have been an ankylosaur. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) At least we have one. Yes, true. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone. There are a lot of dinosaur hotspots in the world, and high on our list of places to visit is Brazil because there are so many cool dinosaur sites in that country. Yes, it's home to some of the earliest dinosaurs like Saturnalia, a small long-necked dinosaur that weighed just a little more than a house cat. And then there's Austroposeidon, the largest known dinosaur from Brazil. It's about 82 feet or 25 meters long. And the carnivorous Thanos, Yes, that Thanos, named for the Marvel Comics supervillain. 
plus some really amazing sites like the one recently described where people from thousands of years ago made rock carvings to go alongside dinosaur tracks. Yeah, petroglyphs and footprints in one place. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely want to learn Portuguese before we visit Brazil. One thing we've learned from our travels is you have a lot more fun adventures when you know the local language. Yeah, and places like petroglyphs aren't always near big cities, so it's very useful to have some local language knowledge. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in handy. It's designed and refined by language learning experts, and the lessons are immersive. There's also an audio companion, which is great when you're commuting, taking long walks, or even doing chores around the house. Perfect for when you're waiting for the next Dino Dino episode to drop. So, sauge, or cheers. Join now at rosettastone.com slash dino for a special limited time offer just for our listeners, and you'll get over 50% off for a lifetime membership. It's worth $399, but you can get it for just $179, and you'll get access to all 25 language courses. Again, that's rosettastone.com slash dino. The Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, And CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Draco Pelta, which was a request from Portuguese Eagle. So thanks. It was an ankylosaur that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Portugal. And since it was from the Jurassic, that means it was in the early stages of ankylosaur evolution. And it's a notosaur, specifically, so it didn't have a tail club. It was herbivorous. The type species is Dracopelta zibscheschii, and the name means dragon shield. And the species name is in honor of the paleontologist George Zibshevsky. That is not easy for me to pronounce. Hopefully <laughs> I got that not terribly wrong. And he was a Portuguese vertebrate paleontologist. It was described in 1980 by Peter Galton. There's only one known specimen that was found in Ribamar. There are two localities called Ribamar, though, in the same region of Portugal. It's very confusing. One's from the early Cretaceous. The other is from the late Jurassic. And in 2003, Antunes and Mateus suggested that Dracopelta probably came from the late Jurassic locality. The Dracopelta holotype is a partial skeleton. It includes a ribcage, 13 dorsal vertebrae, five different types of scutes, and ossified tendons. And it came out of a pretty nice articulated block, but a large portion of the middle had eroded away. It also had a broad back for the early Jurassic Age, which is similar to later ankylosaurs. And its sides were covered with overlapping armor. The largest piece was 7.5 inches by 4.3 inches, or 19 by 11 centimeters. The fact that it had ossified tendons may mean that other relatives may have had them as well. Other dinosaurs from the same formation as Dracopelta include ornithopods, Hypsilophodon, the sauropods like Apatosaurus, Brachiosaurus, and Astrodon, the Stegosaur, Decentrosaurus, the Iguanodontid, Camptosaurus, and the Carnivore, Megalosaurus. And the holotype is in the Museum of the Geological Survey of Portugal in Lisbon. One thing I really like about Dracopelta is there's a lot of this contention about Draco Rex Hogwartsia and whether or not it gets synonymized later, but we'll always still have Dracopelta, hopefully. True. So you can just come to the ankylosaur side of things. I'm always trying to recruit ankylosaur fans. There's plenty. And our fun fact of the day is that x-rays can easily see through rock, but not lead, like I mentioned earlier when I was talking about CT scans, because CT scans are just a fancy type of x-ray. Essentially, the reason why x-rays can't pass through lead is because lead has a higher density of electrons, 
or put simply, it has a very high number on the periodic table, 82, meaning that it has 82 protons and usually 82 electrons. So when an electromagnetic wave, including radio, x-ray, or gamma ray, tries to go through lead, the energy interacts with all these electrons and gets scattered before passing through to the other side. And the only way that it gets detected and makes it onto like an x-ray scan is that it goes directly through and makes it to the sensor on the other side. So if it gets scattered off, then you just get a black spot because it's not getting any of that signal through the middle of the sample. So compare those 82 electrons in lead to silicon, which only has 14 electrons, and oxygen, which only has 16, and those are the two most common elements in rock, especially things like quartz, then you can see like how much harder it is to get through something like lead than it is to get through silica. You can get more complex with your calculations and look at specific electron orbitals and bond lengths, but it's really mostly just about all of those electrons and the negative charges repelling those x-rays and kind of scattering them, and all those electrons interacting with the x-rays and scattering them and just screwing up your signal. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino for cool rewards. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Good day.